I'd love trying to be at the intersection of like possible and impossible comfort and discomfort, because I think that's where we discover what we're capable of. Hey, y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin, and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Thank you so much for welcoming me into your ears as we chalk up today for a chat with Kevin Jorgensen. You all know Kevin from his iconic first free ascent of the Dawn Wall, along with Tommy Caldwell, of course, a climb that took over six years to put together and is widely known as the most challenging big wall route in the world. Aside from that little thing, Kevin's an incredibly accomplished climber, y'all. From dominating comps as a youth to becoming one of the strongest boulderers in the world, with sends up to V14, including first ascents of the now classic buttermilk highballs, the beautiful and the damned, a 35-foot V13, and Ambrosia, a 45-foot V11. My hands are sweating just talking about it. Today, we talk about his struggles and breakthroughs from being terrified of the height on El Cap to fear of failure to recovering from a recent pulley injury. We're also going to dive into his incredibly inspiring work to introduce a million kids to climbing through his nonprofit organization called One Climb, and also his work to open up a world-class gym in his hometown. Y'all, I've known Kevin for years. He's truly one of the most gracious, stoked, and driven people around, and I am so psyched for this chat. The official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle is Fizzy Vantage. Founded by legendary climbing coach Eric Hurst, Fizzy Vantage products are research-based and developed from scratch specifically to support hard-training, passionate climbers like you and me. You guys, I've been a paying customer for over a year now, and I just cannot say enough about how great their products are. I'll mix some of their chocolate supercharged collagen into my tea in the morning to keep the tendons healthy so that I can train and climb harder. And then after a workout, I will refuel with their vegan protein PowerPlex, which contains 20 grams of clean protein and 10 grams of essential amino acids. What does all that mean? Well, it makes you stronger when you sleep. Boom. Look, these products and the people behind them are just the best of the best. Try it out for yourself. I'm sure you're going to be as psyched as I am. Just hit that link in the show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition order. This episode is also sponsored by Athletic Greens. Y'all have heard of these guys. They have over 7,000 five-star reviews and they're recommended by pro athletes everywhere. I've been taking AG1 for a while now and I love it. I shake a scoop into some cold water and I enjoy it as the sun comes up before the hustle of the day has begun. It's like my mini morning meditation. It supports gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy, focus, recovery, and aging, all the things, you guys. And it's just way cheaper than buying all kinds of supplements. I love the taste, and it's a simple thing I can do every day to take care of myself. It's also really cool that they're a carbon-neutral company. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com struggle. Again, that's athleticgreens.com struggle to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now, I'm really proud to say that the struggle is carbon neutral thanks to a partnership with the Honold Foundation, whose mission is to promote solar energy for a more equitable world. What I really like about what they're doing is that they are empowering communities, not just powering them. And I don't know if they've said that before or if I just made that up, but it's really good. So I think they should run with it. 
hop over to HoundleFoundation.org and just learn about the projects they're working on because they really are working closely with local and indigenous people to change their lives. And that is awesome. And lastly, y'all, after my chat with Kevin, stick around for a couple minutes to learn how you can score some swag from the show. All right, get ready to leave the safety of your portalage as we pull on to this fantastic chat with Kevin Jorgensen. Kevin, so good to see you, buddy. Thank you for joining the show. I mean, it's been a while. We've known each other since, I guess, pretty soon after you did the Dawn Wall. <laughs> a lot's happened between now and then. How are you? How's life? Life's crazy. Life is good. It's a lot more complicated than it was back then, but for all great reasons. Well, I'm just so excited to dive in with you and get real granular on your struggles and your breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game. But before we dive into all of that. Let's zoom out for a second. I just want to hear what you think about struggle. What is your relationship with struggle? I love that question because for me and my relationship with climbing and with struggle, when those two things coexist, it means you're doing it right. Like climbing is supposed to be hard. That's why we do it. Yeah, we enjoy the easy romp up a mellow highball or a warm-up pitch or whatever, but Let's face it, we love the struggle. We love the beatdown. We love the preparation. And the struggle is, it's the heart of it. What, did you always feel that way? You know, like, has that been something that's attracted you to the sport? Or has your relationship with struggle evolved as you've taken on what have been, you know, some of the most challenging projects in climbing? I think just as a personality, I hate sucking at things. Like, I'm just, even if I'm not in a competition, I think I'm just naturally super competitive, even if it's just with my own expectations of myself. So I happen to spend 25 years and counting expressing that through climbing, but I think it crosses over into to everything I do. Oh, that's great, man. Let's jump in. Let's get specific here. Where have you specifically struggled in your training, Kevin? I would say with training at all. I always just climb to train. I use my projects as my training and that's always worked for me. But I recently sustained like the worst injury I've ever had, like the longest time off of climbing. I ruptured a pulley and I was a little lackadaisical on getting it properly diagnosed. So I like definitely burned probably six weeks in there, just not getting imaging done. But in total, I had five months off. Wow. How did the injury happen? Looking back, like it seems pretty inevitable. Four days before I had done a really hard hangboard workout, I had fucked up the rest intervals. So I'd really put way more stress on the tendons than the, the program was designed. I tried to climb two days later and I could tell like my tendons were just not having it. They're like, yo, not today. So then I came back another two days later, short training window in the day. I think I had two hours or an hour and a half. So I had an abbreviated warm up, and then I just got right to it way too fast, boning down on some heinous holds. And it was like a pencil snap. And I knew right away what had happened. Oh, brutal. You've built a career on pulling down on some of the smallest, most heinous stuff, like really yarding down on it over and over again. In fact, whether it's on those really blank pitches on the Don Wall or working on like Ambrosia and some of these really like high limit boulders that did you say that's the first time that's happened? Like that? Yeah, I've never 
had a finger injury in my career prior to this. Wow. It's just never been a thing. And yeah, I've never, I've always been able to warm up pretty quick. Like on the Don Wall, you basically have to warm up on the crux pitches. Like you can warm up by jumaring and doing push-ups on the portal edge. And other than that, you just have to pull on and start climbing. So it's never been a worry. I don't have an injury history or anything like that to, to look back on, but I do now. Well, I mean, honestly, I think the fact that you've avoided injury for this long in your career is pretty impressive and uh, a little bit of an outlier. And so now you've got this injury. What, what did the doctor say? Yeah, I went and saw four or five hand surgeons. The consensus was all no surgery, three months off. They had read all the same hmm. papers and studies that I had found online for folks that have a climbing background with this specific injury. So they were going off the same reference material, I think, that a lot of climbers do. So yeah, it was three months off, but they started the clock from when I saw them, not from when I sustained the injury because they wanted me to wear this right. specific pulley ring 23 hours a day. And that was basically it. Like wear this ring, don't do anything for three months. So I did. Wow. But the good news is I've been climbing since mid-September, early October, and it feels great. There was like some disengagement early on. You, you like, not, it's just psychological. Just not, you could feel the muscle right. not wanting to fully engage. But now I think that's pretty much passed. And so I'm trying to be disciplined and for the first time actually following a training program to your question. And I got that one from, uh, I'm working with Tom from Lattice because he's rehabbed from pulley injuries. He's rehabbed other athletes from pulley injuries. And I hit him up. I was like, Tom, I never done this before training formally or coming off a pulley injury, make sure I don't fuck this up. Because if I do it myself, I'll probably try too hard and have a setback of some kind. So just tell me what to do. Oh man, I'm happy to hear that you're back on the up. And when you're coming back from something like that and you're starting to train hard now, what are the limiting factors? Is it more psychological, like wondering if you can pull down hard again, or is it just more physical? For me, it's more physical. The psychological element was mm. there for sure. But as soon as Tom told me like, hey, it's not supposed to be pain-free. If it's a two or a three out of 10, it's okay. That's normal for coming back on this kind of thing. Without that context, I probably would have been way more gun-shy about any kind of sensation in that finger. So following that guideline and following the kind of hangboard and other workout prescriptions he's been providing, it's been good. Ah, oh, good, man. That's great to hear. Okay, so I want to just talk a little bit more about your training in general now, outside of injury recovery. And you had mentioned that a lot of the training that you've done is essentially just climbing, like being outside and, and trying hard on projects. So tell me a little bit more about that, contrasting with indoor training. So when I was doing comps, so that's 15 to 19, I was training indoors all the time to go compete indoors all the time. That was just sure. like a chapter of my climbing. And then when I aged out of the youth comps, there wasn't much of an adult circuit at the time. There was a couple one-off comps, but nothing to commit yourself to so much unless you were going to go to Europe. But I kind of had it with training indoors to go compete indoors. So I just started climbing outside full time. There was no space for going to the gym and training. I was just living in Bishop for a couple months or going to the Valley for a sure. long time. And just like climbing on rock just became my training. And I became more fluent as a climber by spending lots of time in these areas and on these different rock types. And I feel like that can be an overlooked skill set in your quiver 
is just your fluency on different rock types that you can only get with time spent, obviously, in those areas. So th there was this whole chapter where it was just like, I'm just climbing outside all the time. Yeah, that's definitely a theme I've been hearing in having these conversations is how invaluable it is to just move over real rock as much as possible. And of course, not all of us can do that all the time. And so we train indoors and we work on our strength or we work on our technique at the gym. But to be able to get outside is just so crucial. And that really laid the foundation for you, obviously. Um, just one more question on training here. And that's how you look at the concept of rest and sleep. I've Somewhere along the line, I'd heard that adage that you don't get stronger by training, you get stronger in the time between your training. And I think that's super critical. And it's definitely something that Tom emphasizes a lot, making sure that you're getting the correct intervals between things like your fingerboard workout. You got to have a full 48 hours off before you get another one of those modules. And quality of sleep, especially if you're doing a uh, morning workouts or a morning push on something like sleep, you gotta be ready to go from right when you wake up essentially. And so I, I place a high emphasis on quality rest for sure. Yeah. That concept of rest is definitely something that I've struggled with. And you know, it's interesting. I actually did a lattice program this last season and went from 11B to 12C. It's amazing. It's crazy. You know, it's just, they really dialed in. They're like, hey, your fingers are super weak. And so we just really focused on that. And what that meant was, to your point earlier, you know, maybe I do a hangboard thing. It might take 15 minutes total. And that was it for two days. Like, it was just the craziest thing. Go, yeah, for two days. Go warm up, do these weighted hangs or whatever for 20, 30 minutes and get the fuck out and don't do anything else. Totally. Like maybe you get to do some conditioning, but that's it. Yeah, it's like stretching. You're like, man, I feel like a lazy sack. <laughs> but then two weeks later, you're like, oh, I can pull harder all of a sudden. Like I feel lighter. This is amazing. For sure. Yeah, it's just so important to be disciplined about rest, which is not something that I think comes natural to a lot of climbers. And what about sleep for you? How, how do you sleep and what's your routine like on that? It's very hit or miss. Let's see, about two months ago, I started a like a nightly, right before bed, like 10 minute meditation practice. And I found that that improved the quality of my sleep dramatically, like less waking up, better dreams, just like waking up, feeling better. And I've been sticking to that every night and it's been awesome. Highly recommend. But then my son stopped napping recently. So with that, for some reason now, the last three or four nights in a row, he's been waking up in the middle of the night, which he never does. Huh. This kid's an amazing sleeper. Since he was little, he just like sleeps through the night. But now we're getting these like 2.30 wake ups every night. Oh, wow. Add on like another 5.30 wake up and maybe he's up for the day, maybe he's not. So it's like, Jackie and I are both a little bit haggard from that because we've been spoiled. We haven't, he's been sleeping through the night forever. Yeah, so, that can be tough. Yeah, there's a lot that's out of your control too. Yeah, I mean, being a parent is like, it's yeah, get nine hours of sleep because you're an athlete. And then you're like, well, but yeah, I got a three-year-old, you know? So sometimes you just got to take it when you can get it. Yeah. All right, Kevin, let's talk about nutrition now and any areas there where you have struggled. I think where nutrition gets tricky in my experience is when you're waking up super early to do some big day and you're needing to feed your body at an uncommon hour. And that can be tough to like acclimate to. And then to be like really physically active at four, five, six in the morning when you're not used to doing that is likewise something that you kind of have to remind your body that it's capable of that. And that was something I wasn't used to until I started climbing in Yosemite a bunch and you go to have a big day out. 
And you're like, whoa, this is different. I didn't feel like eating, so I didn't eat, and now I'm bonking. Yeah. This is interesting. Let's talk about this a little bit in the context of the Dawn Wall. How was it up there, and how were you avoiding bonking, but also not feeling bogged down by a bunch of heavy food as you were trying to pull the hardest pitches in the world? It was pretty luxurious up on the Dawn Wall because we would like sleep in every day till whenever. We did all our climbing at night. That all felt pretty normal, although we were like pretty emaciated by the time we got to the top. We didn't really like realize it till we got and we're like, where did we go? We're all <laughs> skin and bones. But on like other objectives where it's like an in a day push kind of thing, that's when it's honestly just trial and error. I, I certainly could have gotten more scientific about it, work with the nutritionist or that kind of thing. But, you know, you log enough days, you learn what works and what doesn't. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, this is part of what's so exciting for me in the area, like just for the sport, like Listening to myself, it's like so unscientific, like the approach to these things. And I think in a lot of ways, training for climbing has been like that. And it's only now getting more and more scientific, more and more studies, more and more highly educated people who happen to also be climbers applying that curiosity and that interest to the sport. And I'm really excited to see the outcome of that going a decade into the future. Because I think, yeah, we see all these other sports training-wise operating at a really scientific level with a lot of stuff going into those, into things like nutrition, into the training plan. And with climbing, like, yeah, you can be a young mutant and not be tapping into any of that and still be like super competitive. But what happens when those two worlds collide? Yeah, I love that thought experiment. Okay, let's keep going along this line for a second. What will happen to the sport, do you think? How much further can it be pushed, do you think, with science coming into the picture? Will the Dawn Wall always be the hardest big wall in the world, or will it be a warm-up one day? I always look to the cutting edge of bouldering when it comes to, like, limits for the sport. The Dawn Wall, really, yeah, it's hard, but the hardest moves probably be 12 which kids are warming up on. Not that the other moves are casual, like linking together all these, it's its own style and whatnot. But when you, if you just are purely looking at what are humans capable of on a move by move basis, it's not that impressive. So I think when it comes to training, there's still quite a big gap that could be closed. What's it take to do a V15 boulder 50 meters up after doing 9A? What kind of lactic acid threshold and clearing and stamina do you need to have to be able to, to do that kind of thing? Because surely a route like that is out there. All right, Kevin, let's talk about tactics and technique now and any areas where you've struggled across your climbing, whether it's from your comp days or bouldering and high balls or all the way into doing big walls. I guess this bleeds a little bit into the mental game stuff, but Depending on your environment, it can be really hard to apply the same skill set that you might have in one area of the sport over here in another area of mm -hmm. the sport. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. So you're coming from being one of the most accomplished boulderers in the world, and then you shift gears almost on a dime to taking on probably the most intimidating big wall climb in the world. So what was that like for you? I couldn't climb anything in those first couple of years. I just felt like a fish out of water. But what I did bring was like a surgical approach to sequencing. And Tommy is just so naturally gifted 
on granite because he's just spent so much time up there. He trains harder than anybody as well, but he's got so much talent for that style of climbing that he doesn't need to, in a lot of cases where I would, he wouldn't need to memorize the sequences. Whereas I would memorize every single move on the entire route, all 3,000 wow. feet of it, essentially, or at least the first 20 pitches of it, where he could basically on-site his way up the pitches that he'd done before, didn't really remember, oh, I think it goes like this, and just improvise and make it work, where I would be like, pin scar like this, foot there, back plug over here, little chimney thing, and then I got to get this, then I got to get that. So that dialogue there, that surgical approach, where did that come from? Was that from doing highballs like Ambrosia, some of the scariest climbs out there? Exactly. Yeah. On a highball, there's no room for improvising. Mm -hmm. You're executing. In a lot, in my experience, in the ideal experience of a highball, by the time you pull on, in some ways, the outcome is already certain. You're just going through the motions. Like you've already lived the experience of the worst case scenarios, the best case scenarios, all of these different things you hash through in your head. And by the time you feel ready enough to pull on, it's almost, it's just flow state and it mm -hmm. just happens. But it only happens like that because there's no mystery, ideally, in what you're doing up there. So you had every single move figured out. You knew exactly where you wanted to go. You knew exactly what worked. What happens then when it's not working? And we can't talk about the struggle without talking about pitch 15 for a minute here. So you had every single sequence totally locked in on that, but it wasn't coming together on the push. So what happens then? What happened is I spent seven days trying the same thing and getting the same outcome. 10 tries over seven days, same outcome. So tactically, I really had to question if my assumptions were right. And I knew they were right in certain scenarios, but in the one I was living right now, it wasn't working. Um, so on my rest days, I had the, the film guys edit all of my failed attempts up to that point so that I could watch it. And I try to decipher what was, why my feet were slipping. Cause it was always a foot slip. It wasn't uh, anything else. And then from that, I just devised a new foot sequence. I love this. Cause it's just like, you hear all these things about elite athletes, always visualizing the success. And here you are sitting in a portal ledge, <laughs> reviewing films of all of your failures. That's how I started my rest days. Just watching myself on loop falling. It's very Dude. counterintuitive. It's just so ridiculous. So then what happened? So you recognized that there was some beta that just wasn't working this time that had in the past? A new foot sequence. I reverted to something I had tried in the past that had way more foot moves in it than the previous kind of approach I was taking. But I think it did two things. Like one, it did put me in a better position to get my feet where I needed them to be. And two, it changed my body's perception of where it was in the crux instead of, oh, this is the point when you fall. This is when your right foot slips or this is when the left hand comes on. So I hit my low point and then switched it. But it's just incredible. It was definitely a risk. It's incredible. Yeah, it's a huge risk. But you got to the point where it was like, look, even if switching the sequence so that there were more moves compared to the other beta that you had, at least it was different and it would give you a new opportunity to descend. And tactically speaking, I think that's fascinating because we're always focusing on efficiency, which is typically a good rule of thumb to have. But here you went 
the other way. You went against efficiency to just get yourself out of that pattern of that foot slip. And tactically, I think that's a, a really cool thing for us to keep in mind as we're working on our own projects. Yeah, I love that. Totally. All right, Kevin, let's shift to mental game here, but let's stay focused on pitch 15 because not only were you tactically working out some new beta there, but also it just happened to be that the entire world started paying attention to you and Tommy and this crazy thing called the Dawn Wall right about when you were hitting the cruxiest of moments in that climb for yourself. So how did that affect you on the mental side of things? It certainly was a factor. It was something that we as a team, because it wasn't just Tommy and I up there, you know, some of our best friends were up there with us, Corey Ridge, Brett Lowell. So we kind of powwowed and we're like, what are we going to do about this? We're getting a hundred emails a day asking for interviews and shit. It was just like people were somehow finding our phone numbers. It was really distracting, Yeah, but I wouldn't characterize it as like a source of stress. Mm. It was just like, it was there. It was distracting, but my desire to do the route with Tommy paled in comparison to the the meaning of this little of the chatter you know like i spent my rest days thinking about what it was going to be like to almost do the dot wall for the rest of my life and that was unbearable i was like no that's not how this is gonna go that's interesting can, you meditated you visualized on what the ultimate failure would be or feel like that was your motivation rather than the feeling of what it would be like to get to the top successfully yeah, it, it sounds dark now, you know, here I am watching videos of myself falling and thinking about like <laughs> living with the memory of almost for the rest of my life. But that's the truth of it. I wasn't thinking about, you know, being triumphant on the summit or whatever, some like picturesque thing. It was just like, no, because that's going to come and go and you're going to have a memory of this experience. And what's that going to be? Yeah, I'm really interested to hear how you took that and then used it to give you the motivation that you needed. Because while most of us aren't going to be taking on the hardest big wall climbs in the world with news crews and a social media frenzy following us, I think we can relate to being at the crag and really wanting to get our project done. And maybe there's people hanging out and watching our friends or people that are lined up for the route or at a boulder. There's a bunch of people around and oftentimes supportive, but also you can feel that pressure on yourself. How did you work through that and how can we apply that, the rest of us? So a couple things, but first where we began, which is climbing supposed to be hard. That's kind of what we signed up for. On one hand, yes, the moment is intense and it means a lot to you personally. Like, obviously you want to succeed. And on the other hand, this is what you signed up for. Like you knew it was going to be hard and here it is. So how are you reacting to that? Mm -hmm. And there's this, I don't know who came up with it, probably Mountaineers or something like that, but this idea of the fun scale where there's what an experience is like in the moment versus what the memory is like. And they're not always the same thing in it. I think non-climbers can attest to this as well, but type one fun is fun in the moment and fun when you look back on it, but type two fun is not so fun at the moment, but when you look back on it, you're really proud. It's a really awesome memory. And those are the experiences that good stories are made of. And those are the ones where you're pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone and coming out together a little bit stronger or a little bit wiser, but without that hardship, 
life is just a bunch of type one fun, which maybe for some, that's the life they want to live. But man, I'd love trying to be at the intersection of like possible and impossible comfort and discomfort, because I think that's where we discover what we're capable of. You know, that doesn't come without a lot of hardship, uh, a lot of elective hardship, to be clear. Like, this is the most privileged form of hardship one can imagine, you know, the, the deliberately voluntary hardship. But, you know, that morning, January 9th, I woke up, two days rest, conditions are perfect, it's cloudy, it's windy, it hadn't been either of those two things the entire time we were up there, with the exception of a storm day on day five, when it was like minus 20. So it was just, I just felt so grateful. I don't remember feeling stressed. I was remember being like really focused, but there was a sense of calm and a sense of gratefulness that like, that it's supposed to be hard, mm. but look at the position you're in. You're up here with your best friends. You've got perfect conditions. You're on two days rest. You've sent everything up until here. And now you have the opportunity to, to put this pitch down. And that brought, the, that brought a smile to my face. Sure. I was like a little bit nervous, of course, but like, most of all, this is what we signed up for. Like we, we set off 14 days prior knowing it was going to be a battle, just like the previous six years were. So when that hardship comes, it's a lot easier to embrace it when you expect it. It's not a surprise. So doing your best to just like embrace it when it comes. And if you can, in some kind of sick, twisted, type two fun kind of way, enjoy it at the same time, then you kind of have yourself a recipe for really pushing yourself and I think finding a lot of growth on the other side. Beautiful. That's just beautiful, man. I love it. I love this concept too of gratitude because I think we can all get caught up in the ego of the send or the not send and, and will I hit my goal for the season or will my buddies high five me when I come down? But just taking a deep breath and saying, man, how awesome that I get to be at the crag right now or get to be on the side of a wall or, you know, wherever it is that we do our climbing. I can just, even just talking about that just right now, I can feel pressure and fear of failure evaporate. What a beautiful thing mm -hmm. that we get to experience this type two fun. Man, I love that. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you bet. All right, last question on the mental game aspect here, and that's around meditation and mindfulness. And you mentioned that you do a bit of a meditation before bed. What else? Anything else that you're doing in that area? I have to say that like up until recently, climbing was my meditation. Yeah. It was my meditation. It did and continues to be a huge part of my mental health. If I'm not enjoying the experience of moving over rock or not, like plastic, whatever, I get grumpy. My, my work output is worse. I'm a worse companion. I'm a worse father. I'm just, I need it. Like I need food. I need that. Just that I'm an introvert too. I'm like deeply introverted. And I just need to be able to drop into my experience and just focus and move. And that's just so therapeutic for me. Yeah. So extending that toward like a bedtime meditation routine, I think it's just an extension of kind of the moving meditation practice that I find with climbing. Yeah, absolutely. Simply climbing is a meditation, especially if you're doing some limit climbing. If you're really focused, ultra focused on what's in front of you, then your mind is clear from any other stressors of the day, any other worries that you might have. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's what's always drawn me to it personally. 
All right, man, let's talk about things that you're passionate about beyond just moving over rock. And I'm talking about some charity things you're working on, a business venture you're working on. You got a lot of plates spinning. So just from a broad point of view, I'd love to know where your heart for service comes from. I suppose it could be traced back to my parents mm -hmm. and just how I was raised and, you know, volunteering before I was ever like in the workforce and just trying to make our community a little better than it already is, you know? Well, I've been following this awesome work that you've been doing with One Climb for years now, this charity that you started to connect kids through the just the joy of climbing with mentors and through boys and girls clubs and other climbing gyms. And it's it's a big but also beautifully simple idea. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? In 2010, this question popped into my head, which was what would it take to introduce a million kids to climbing. It wasn't a goal, it was a question. Like just structurally, how would one go about doing that? Is that even possible? So I started thinking about it and I was looking at the base of the pyramid for how people get into the sport and it's indoor climbing gyms. Those have very real cost barriers, very real proximity barriers. The very self-limiting base of, of a pyramid to have for a sport that has the potential to change the trajectory of a kid's life. Mm -hmm. That's why we called it one climb because a climb, a single climb has the potential to just like help a kid fall in love with this sport and totally change the trajectory of their lives. So I was like, if that's the case, if the reality is the base of our pyramid has high cost barriers and high proximity barriers. We got to fix that. We need a new base of the pyramid. Like, how do you build a base under the base? Mm -hmm. So you need something that has the ability to outnumber the current number of climbing gyms. There just has to be more of them. And there has to be no cost barrier, like pretty high hurdles. But then I looked at, I was like, okay, well, there's only 500, there's probably only 400 gyms at the time. So like what has more than 400 sites just because that's what we have to outnumber for climbing gyms. Well, the Boys and Girls Club of America has 4,000 clubs and they serve four and a half million kids a year. So there's your proximity problem. There's four and a half million kids hanging out at Boys and Girls Clubs every single year. Mm -hmm. Oh, and it doesn't cost anything for most of them. So there's your cost barrier, cost and proximity. So let's just put climbing there. Let's put climbing where the kids already are. So that's what we did. The first one in Sonoma, we, you know, scraped together some donations and we built a very simple wall, dead vert in this boys and girls club. And it, in some ways, like it was amazing. These kids who had never seen climbing before just took to it so naturally. And that's when I teamed up with my co-founder, Dan Chancellor from Soil, called it one climb. And we did the second one. And the second one was super special. We did it in St. Louis. And we had a specific partner facility, which was Climb So Ill, and it's right down the street. And that, that opened our eyes, that cracked the code, because now you can have this mentorship, you can have this staff training, the wall can be taken care of, and the kids that are taking a liking to it, they can come to the climbing gym and they can slot in for free if they need to, to any of the programming going on there, and they can take their interest and passion for the sport as far as they feel like it. So now fast forward to 2022, there's the uh, 550 to 600 climbing gyms 
We only have 14 one cloud programs. Got a lot of work to do. Got a lot of scales to achieve. Man, that is just so damn impressive and inspiring. 14 locations is a lot of locations. That's a lot of kids who have an opportunity at the life-changing experience of rock climbing. But it's also just a ton of work. <laughs> I can't even imagine the logistics of a project like that. And um, you're certainly no stranger to taking on big projects. But, you know, is that process enjoyable for you? Is it as enjoyable as the outcome? Totally. It's just an extension of my climbing. There's a certain level of discovery and adventure that comes with doing first descents. Mm -hmm. There's tons of creativity. There's tons of unknowns. There's tons of collaboration in the case of big wall climbing. Like, and these elements are all true when you're trying to create something that doesn't exist in the world that doesn't involve a rock climb. I mean, look, I'm a sucker for long-term projects, obviously. Yeah. So I think it, it, it keeps things interesting for me when the objective is big enough that it requires full commitment and full commitment looks like you know, an unknown number of years of focus and dedication. Man, I love the parallels to climbing there. That's, that is awesome. And so let's take it further. I mean, what's it like when you send um, a project like this? Like when you get to show up and a new one climb has opened up and you're watching these kids click into the auto belay and start up a wall, what is that like? Oh, man, literally my favorite day of the year is any day I get to go to a, a one climb grand opening. Often these kids have never seen a climbing wall before and they show up to it with such courage, even when they're uncomfortable mm -hmm. and such enthusiasm that it, it's really admirable. If you watch the kids closely, yeah, some of them, they can't wait to get on the wall, but not everyone. And I like to say that climbing is just such a great mirror for life and whatever you're seeking or whatever you need, whatever you would benefit from, whether you know it or not, you'll find it in climbing. It'll pull it out of you. If you lack confidence as a little kid, climbing gives you the opportunity. Forget any curriculum, forget any coaching, simply the act of clipping in and starting to climb will give that kid the opportunity to build confidence. Mm. Fill in the blank, swap out confidence for fear. You know, you're a fearful little kid. Climbing gives you the opportunity to face that fear and to show yourself that you can overcome it. Sick. That's so great, man. Thank you for sharing. I mean, your passion comes through, the heart comes through, and I'm psyched. Like, I am going to figure out how to fund one of these things here in Louisville, Kentucky. Hell yeah. And on top of all that incredible stuff that you're doing, you're also opening up a gym, like a world-class gym in your neck of the woods. Tell me about that. So in a lot of ways, the motivations are very similar to what drives me in my climbing and what drives me with one climb, which is I can picture this future in which something exists that doesn't exist today that I think is going to be a net positive. And for this area, like we have a great climbing gym from the early 90s that I love. It's where I started climbing. But then after traveling the world, so luckily for my career and seeing this, the state of climbing gyms and what they offer the community and they're just able to introduce so many more people to the sport. I was like, God, we got to have one of these. Just my vision for it, though, was so expensive because I wanted to do it from the ground up. I really wanted to find a piece of dirt and develop it from scratch. But 
man, has it been a struggle Whew, at every turn. <laughs> I'm a sucker for punishment. It's so crazy exciting, man. And what you've shared on Instagram, the, the photos, the walls, the holds, the design is just a stunning facility. And you're calling it Session, Session Climbing Gym. So how did that come about? Yeah. So the reason we named this endeavor Session to begin with is, was just to remind ourselves of why we're doing what we're doing, why we're trying to create what we're trying to create, because what is a session? It's exactly what we've done here this afternoon. We've carved out time. We've said no to everything else, and we're giving 100% of our focus to this time together. That's really important. Everyone's got stuff going on in their lives. Everyone's got stuff competing for their attention. So when someone carves out time to spend time in, in your place, a place that you designed and brought into the world, that's really meaningful. More than any membership cost or this or that, it's just like people are spending their time in your place. That's a really big deal. Mm -hmm. So our North Star is time well spent. It's why we called it Session. Congratulations on it, man. What incredible hard work you just put into everything that you take on. It is so damn inspiring from one climb to Session to your incredible accomplishments as a rock climber. Thank you so much, KJ, for sharing your struggles and your breakthroughs. I look forward to having another session with you soon. Maybe at your gym, maybe back here on the show. Keep in touch, all right? Thanks for having me, Ryan. Oh man, such a great conversation with my buddy, Kevin. I hope you all loved it as much as I did. Let us know. You can find us on Instagram, at kjorgeson, at Ryan Devlin Outside, and at The Struggle Climbing Show. Now, my takeaways from the combo are just how important it is to get out and climb on a variety of different rock types, like Kevin said. From slippery granite slabs to overhung sandstone, the skills developed on that different types of rock will round out the toolkit. I also love KJ's perspective on type 2 fun, which is just always a nice reminder when we're putting too much pressure on ourselves. And lastly, here's a guy who throws 100% into big projects on and off the wall, and his work with One Climb just totally exemplifies that. I'm so inspired. If y'all can, look them up and support them. Shout out to Fizzy Vantage for being the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. If y'all want to level up your training and performance, and I know you do, check them out. They're the best. You can find Fizzy Vantage now in Europe on the Epic TV online shop. And in the U.S., you can find their eight innovative products at select gyms and, of course, at fizzyvantage.com. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. All right, that clips the anchors on another episode of The Struggle. But before I let you go, how about some swag? If you want to support this show and the climbers who make it, please pop on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show and check us out. We only have one tier. It's called Send Train, and we would love to have you on the Send Train. For only seven bucks a month, you're going to be supporting the show so we can make more of them. You get the inside scoop on everything that's going on with the show, and you'll also score yourself a limited edition travel mug slash can koozie that's only available to guests of the show and the patrons that support it. So unless you're going to be climbing 515 anytime soon, the only way to get one of these mugs is to support the show, and it would just mean so much to us. Pop over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show and help us out. We'd really appreciate it. These shows take a lot more work than we thought. And by we, I mean me as I'm sitting in my closet at midnight while my kids sleep. 
If you want to score a free sticker, that's easy. Just rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Snap a little picture of that, post it on Instagram, and tag at The Struggle Climbing Show so that we can find you. And I will mail you a sticker. Slap it on your stick clip, your Nalgene, your forehead, wherever you put stickers, so that everybody knows that you love the struggle and the struggle loves you. All right, let's climb hard and do good things in the world. <laughs>